You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Lori Havelock. This week in the Ticker Podcast, the state of Chinese IR, the new technology powering annual reports, and an inside look at our own research about targeting sovereign wealth funds. It's Friday the 12th of June, and we're all together once again in the IR Magazine studios with Tim Human, Garnet Roach, and Condice de Montpetit. Hiya. Hello. Hello. Uh, excuse us if we're sounding a little bit sleepy. We're fresh from the um, celebratory IR Magazine lunch, aren't we, guys? A little bit slow in the afternoon after being full, so full of pizza. Celebrating the arrival of our new redesigned summer issue, which was, uh, we're all very happy. Lots of hard work went into that. Absolutely, but I think the, the four of us took most of the credit by being the only ones who went and had a celebratory lunch afterwards. Yeah, of course. We do so much hard work, so we deserve pizzas. We actually write and podcast. Not just pizza, but also a nice bit of uh, ice cream as well. Yeah, the, uh, the salted caramel did, did win me over in the end. But I mean, it's, 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 a, just, it's a just celebration because we're all quite proud of that new magazine. If you haven't seen it yet, ladies and gents, listeners, it is looking fantastic. Brand new facelift, new logo, a very exciting cover story featuring Deutsche Telekom's Stefan Eger. I mean, it looks fantastic. To be fair, we should have um, maybe invited the art department because um, they did a very good job <laughs> as well. I think it looks really, really good as Maybe well. next time, guys. Better luck um, next time. But one of the things that actually managed to slip through the magazine and that Garnet has been looking at this week, um, two interesting for the magazine, I think it's the official line, can't it? Well, perhaps too late. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm sure it would have been included. Absolutely. Uh, but some of our own in-house research about uh, sovereign wealth funds and how to target them. Uh, what have you found out? We've actually been looking at the number of companies that meet with sovereign wealth funds and what their plans are and what they've been doing over the past year. And so we found that um, 28% of companies globally, so they're going to increase their focus on sovereign wealth funds this year. And that's actually at least 11 percentage points higher than those looking to increase their focus on ESG or SRI portfolios, private banking portfolios, family offices or hedge funds, which were the other investment types that we looked at. Also, only 2% of IROs said that they plan to decrease sovereign wealth fund shareholder targeting, which was compared to a high of 11% for hedge funds, so it's quite a big difference. We actually found that more Asian IROs are looking to increase their focus on sovereign wealth funds over the coming year, with um, 39% saying that they plan to boost the targeting of these funds, compared with 27% in Europe and just 21% in North America. So it's quite a big difference. Um, and looking at different cap sizes, 23% of IR professionals at both small and mid-cap companies say they are going to do the same, while um, 34% and 35% at large and mega-cap companies have said that they plan to increase their targeting of sovereign wealth funds. And which funds are these companies trying to meet with? Well, globally, almost half of companies met with uh, Norges Bank Investment Management last year, while the Government of Singapore Investment Corporation, or GSIC, um, was not far behind. The third most popular sovereign wealth fund, um, which was met by 28% of companies last year, was the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, which takes a more strategic approach. But we also found that a third of companies say they did not meet with any sovereign wealth funds at all over 2014. And regionally, um, the numbers of companies targeting sovereign wealth funds over the past year really reflects the intentions of IR professionals for the future as well. So it's not surprising that with only 21% of North American IROs saying they plan to increase the targeting of sovereign wealth funds over the coming year, that these were actually the least likely to have met with any of these funds over 2014. In fact, almost half failed to meet with any sovereign wealth funds at all over the last year. In Europe, this was 27%, but in Asia, where sovereign wealth funds are clearly more important... 
more than 90% of respondents did say that they had met with a sovereign wealth fund in the past year. And interestingly, of the two Singaporean sovereign wealth funds, Temasek is actually far more popular with Asian companies. So 52% actually visited the fund last year, compared with 17% visiting GSIC. And the reverse is actually true when it comes to companies from outside the region, where GSIC is definitely the more popular of the two. When it comes to companies of differing cap sizes as well, how do, how, how do they differ when it comes to meeting sovereign wealth funds? Well, the number of companies that fail to meet with any sovereign wealth funds over the past year starts at a high of 62% for small cap companies. And that number drops dramatically as cap size increases to just 4% of mega cap companies. And while Norway remains the most popular across each cap size, the percentage of companies that actually gained access to the fund is vastly different. So at mega cap companies, three quarters of respondents said they met with Norges Bank last year the same number actually that met with GSIC, but only 18% of small cap companies successfully met with the Norwegian fund and 15% for GSIC. So there really is a big difference across different company sizes. Well, it seems to me that Asian IROs uh, see sovereign wealth fund targeting as a more important factor than, than those in other regions. Yeah, we, we did actually ask um, IROs across different regions and cap sizes to rank the importance of targeting different investor types out of 10. And of the five investor types that we looked at, sovereign wealth funds were seen as the most important to target regardless of region, though these funds were ranked higher by Asian IROs than those elsewhere, as you've pointed out. Among different cap sizes, the importance of sovereign wealth funds largely correlates to the numbers that have been meeting the funds over 2014 and those that plan to increase their targeting in the coming year. And for this question, we actually split companies into five cap sizes. So we included micro cap as well as small cap, mid, large and mega caps. And actually, the only sections where sovereign wealth funds were not seen as the most important investor type of the group were at micro and small cap companies, while the rest followed the global trend. I mean, presumably that's because smaller, the, the much smaller companies are less likely to attract investment from a big sovereign wealth fund. We're presumably going to be seeing hundreds of people at once. And yeah, I would definitely say that's the case. I wonder how it's going to play with some sovereign wealth funds taking a bit more of a sustainability-minded uh, route, because, of course, there was that, the vote this week that the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, as you mentioned earlier, is going to divest most of its holdings from fossil fuel companies. And do you think that's going to affect the way that companies start to target these funds? Well, it could do. I think that, um, that Norway is definitely quite um, unusual in the way that it invests its money. Um, I don't think that the other sovereign wealth funds are as open about their investments. But it definitely, I mean, obviously, Norway is a very big fund for a lot of companies. And so if they're going to start making such big decisions like that, it's obviously going to affect a lot of IROs. It's also quite a bizarre situation, isn't it, that you have an enormous fund which has got all of its money from extracting fossil fuels and it's the one that's really going to make a big difference when it comes to getting other companies to change their behaviour. Yeah, it's, so, it's, uh, it's, it's a very interesting situation, I think. In France, we call that uh, the hospital making fun of charity. <laughs> oh, well, now we pop over to uh, what is seen as the home of many of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds. We're going to look at China. Uh, Condice, I believe you've been looking into an article that's uh, examining the state of IR in the, in the country. In an article for our summer edition, Neil Stewart looked at, into the, the state of uh, IR in China, Uh, which is, as he puts it, still very much its own species. So Neil asked some local experts if it would be evolving thanks to the inflow of new foreign institutional investment. Presumably the state of IR has changed quite a lot in the wake of the the link between the Hong Kong and Shanghai stock exchanges as well. Yes, well, um, here's a little reminder. Um, The Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect launched last November 
And before that, foreign investors could only invest in eight shares, which are listed in Hong Kong, or apply to the Qualified Foreign Institutional Investor Program to invest in a quota of mainland A shares. Now, through the Stock Connect, investors can trade A shares directly, and uh, it was expected to trigger a mass inflow of foreign money. But the, the Stock Connect actually took a bit of time to take off, um, apparently due to logistics uh, problems, uh, such as settlements, for example. Uh, not a lack of enthusiasm, say, say all the experts. Uh, in addition to this, MSCI announced that um, it would be adding air shares to its emerging markets index, uh, not this June, but sometime soon. So that means even more uh, capital inflow. How does it work for companies who are listed on both exchanges then, for dual listed companies? A shares trade at much higher prices than their Hong Kong counterparts, um, but that has nothing to do with the fundamentals. Chinese retail shareholders have few options for investing their savings, so they've been pouring their money into the mainland stock markets of uh, Shanghai and Shenzhen, and that led to um, unexpectedly huge valuations. If they're picking up investment from overseas, is, is that going to spur them on to maybe expand their IR programs to reach out overseas as well? Well, Kara um, Ayo, uh, a consultant and former sell-side analyst and head of corporate access, told Neil that um, as long as they trade with a premium to H shares, A share firms won't really have any incentive to expand their, their IR program. One crying example is that despite having foreign shareholders, um, hardly any man mainland firms have an English version of their annual report. However, Richard Tsang, chairman of um, consultancy SPRG, stressed that Asia companies will most likely seek to increase their institutional shareholder base as it will help mitigate volatility. And uh, Karin Ian, a Hong Kong-based partner at emerging markets investor East Capital, added that when companies will have more institutional investors doing fundamental analysis and maybe less retail shareholders making short-term guesses on their share register, things are likely to change. However, it's going to take some time. And would it take more time for you know, certain A-share companies to upgrade their IR standards as well? Neil pointed out that the IR functions in more internationally-oriented sectors such as mining or finance should get a boost from the inflow of foreign money. But uh, it might be slower for more local businesses such as retail or hospitality. Uh, an interesting thing from our think tank in Hong Kong last winter, um, which Karin Iren uh, attended, she said that uh, Chinese retail investors usually have uh, a very short time horizon when they invest. So it's like the week, the month. And she said IROs are surprised when she comes into meetings and asks questions about board composition or long-term plans. She also says that Asia companies rarely have a proper presentation to roll out. And um, they, they show up, as we say in French, les mains dans les poches, the, the hands in their pockets. And uh, they prefer to just um, answer questions. And actually, she likes it that way. Oh, did you go to the, the Asian think tank last year? Well, yes, of course. Karine, uh, Karine Ian is um, actually quite amazing. She's a, <laughs> <laughs> she's a bit my, um, my alter ego in the asset management world, you know. She, <laughs> she's an alumnus from, my, from Sciences Po, my, um, my uh, political science university. She lived in Russia, just like me. And she learned Mandarin, just like me. How weird. Does she also bake to a high standard like you? Um, maybe not. Oh. That's, my, that's my own little advantage. That's <laughs> where it all falls down. Uh, well, maybe some of those companies who are having trouble getting their investor presentations and reports out to foreign investors might want to take some tips from Tim. Uh, Tim, who's been looking at some technological advances in annual reporting. Yes, uh, also for the summer issue, I've been looking into trends in online annual reports. Um, seeing as it's coming up to that time of year when companies and their design firms start thinking about next year's project. The design firms I spoke to picked out a few trends, and I'll go over uh, three of them here. Uh, one of the big ones they mentioned was the use of video. Now, I think every time we've written about annual reports, online annual reports over the last few years, people have mentioned video. It's not a new trend, but I think it's just something that 
is becoming even more uh, pervasive. Um, if you go back a couple of years, for example, 25% of uh, Fortune 100 companies were using video in their online annual reports. And that, according to uh, people who track these kind of things, is still going up year on year. The problem with video is it's very expensive. And so uh, companies are advised to make use of the clips in lots of different ways, not just in the report itself. Well, we quite often see video used in quite a, like you say, quite a rudimentary way in under reports. You know, it's there to present, to introduce it or something similar. Are there any other ways which companies might be able to use video? Well, I think that the most popular way is still the kind of corporate talking head. Um, but a sort of an innovative way that it's coming into a company's annual reports is the use of micro videos. Now, these are where when you go on a website, a video kind of plays in the background while there's other things like links and, and text overlaid on top. It's quite popular already in con- uh, consumer websites. If you go on like Airbnb or PayPal's websites, you'll see this kind of thing. But it's starting to feed through into uh, corporate annual reports as well. For example, Intact Financial in Canada is one company that used that in its 2014 annual report. What other technologies did you look at? Uh, a second area that got mentioned a lot by the, uh, the design firms I spoke to was uh, growing use of responsive design when it comes to the online report. Um, you know, that's where, you know, depending on the device you're using, the size of the device, the report will change uh, depending on what you're using. Again, it's something that's very common with consumer websites, consumer apps and so on. But, uh, you know, it's slowly being adopted by companies as well when it comes to their corporate reporting. I spoke to Scott Marcin, Chief Marketing Officer at Curran & Connors, which is a US-based company that makes a lot of online annual reports. And he put down the sort of growth of use of responsive design to three factors. He said, first of all, that um, data shows mobile traffic continues to grow strongly. Uh, More than half of searches now originate from mobile devices. Uh, Second, he pointed out that responsive design is becoming increasingly important for deciding search engine rankings. So if you want people to be able to find your online annual report, then responsive design is a a key element to that. And finally, it's just sort of anecdotal evidence that everybody tends to have um, a tablet nowadays. You know, anyone who doesn't have one is probably getting one for Christmas next year. (laughs) Yeah, well, actually, my husband, who's a fund manager, was told off by his boss because he didn't own an iPad. <laughs> wow. Well, fair point, you know. I mean, I don't have one, guys. I'm sorry to be, you know, You're the, fired. the technologically lame <laughs> spoke in the uh, ticker podcast wheel. I actually looked into some of these some of these areas myself last year. Um, so what was the third thing that you wanted to talk about, Tim? Uh, well, there's quite a lot of different things we could have picked out. But one more thing to talk about for today is um, using social media to sort of market the online annual report. Um, I spoke to one person at a design firm and and she told me, she described it as a bit of an inconvenient truth. But a lot of um, these online reports, while they cost a lot of money to make, uh, they don't always get that much traffic to them. And so that's kind of pushing companies to think more about how they can market them. And obviously doing stuff on social media, trying to drive people to the report that way is one way to do it. For example, companies are taking certain parts of the report and talking about them on social media and then including links to that, that specific information. So kind of breaking it up and highlighting different parts of the business, for example, or different initiatives that the company's involved in. Like with video, it's just another way to get more out of the reports. You spend a lot of money on it, and so the more ways you can repurpose the information, the better. Although I was told that when companies do share links to uh, their reports online, you know, if they're sharing something like, so something like the CSR report, um, you know, the social media audience, that's something that they'd be quite interested in, you know, what a company's doing, whether it's uh, sustainable, you know, what kind of impact it's having on, it, on the communi- communities it operates in and so on. When companies tweet out information about the, uh, the annual report itself and financial information, for example, that tends to get a bit less traction on social media, which is understandable, I think. There's definitely a bit of a case for using what works and what your investors are used to, right? And if they're, you know, although lots of these things are intended to make 
and your reports easier to read or easier to distribute, in the end, you know, investors are going to want the same information as always and the, the same facts. And maybe, but maybe part of it is that they're they're being more influenced by what the consumer wants as well. And like you said, a lot of these corporate websites aimed at the consumer utilize lots of these interesting techniques to to make them more engaging. So maybe it's you know going hand in hand. Yeah, and I think there's clearly a bit more of um, a focus on innovation when it comes to what you're what you're doing for your consumers. Um, and then yeah, that kind of thing kind of feeds through into what what companies are doing for their financial reports later on. Hmm. Um, when I did, I, I looked at some um, corporate reporting trends for our special report last year, and um, I was told that there's there's a bit of a trend. It depends on the company, though, um, kind of slimming down their annual reports. So obviously some of the big um, financial firms still need to produce a 600-page report that I'm sure everybody loves to read. But other companies are trying to kind of reduce the amount of information they're putting out there obviously some of it has to stay but maybe slim down a little bit a lot of the additional information is just to be found online it doesn't have to be printed well Candice, that is a very easy segue for me to talk about our fantastic new magazine again because the best information is printed in that magazine and it looks great as well it's available to subscribers for more information about subscribing to our magazine or any um, of our to our website any of the articles on there you can find out more information on our homepage iomagazine.com as always, as I mentioned every week, the latest articles are going to be up there. You can find all of the ticker podcasts is going to be up there soon. Uh, otherwise, we're on SoundCloud and iTunes, as per usual. Tune in next week for um, some more information about our European awards, which are coming up on the 30th of June. I've been mentioning for a couple of weeks now. Uh, there are still spots to uh, book a table if you fancy it. Um, you have more information on our website there as well. And I will speak to you three again about our awards next week. Thanks for coming along. Thanks Thank you, Laurie. Um, and have a good week and see you soon. You too. Bye. 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 You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.